0: Hey guys and welcome to hunting land presented by great days outdoors magazine if you like to stay up to date on hunting tactics land management land values and land market dynamics this is the podcast for you this week's show is brought to you by first south farm credit what does a farm mean to you maybe it's just a piece of land where you can go relax or enjoy the outdoors whatever the farm means to you first south farm credit can help you finance or refinance that perfect piece of land as a successful financial cooperative First South shares its profits with its borrowers in the form of a patronage refund, which lowers your cost of borrowing. To find out how First South can help you, visit their website at firstsouthland.com or call them at 800-955-1722. They are an equal housing lender. And also brought to you by Bucks Island Marine. At bucksisland.com, you can check out the full list of inventory from new and used bass, pontoon, and bow rider style boats, new and used motors, as well as kayaks. They love trade-ins, which provides a steady stream of used boats, and they can rig your boat at their 18-bay service department or ship your new motor anywhere in the United States. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. They have factory-trained and certified technicians, so visit them at 4500 Highway 77 in Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. I'm your host, Joe Baia, and this week we're going to be talking about something that is daunting for a lot of landowners, and that's getting your first controlled burn on your property. point of today's show is to introduce you to the concept, the benefits, the vernacular, how you can get started, who you need to reach out to, how you can get it paid for. We're going to do all of that with an expert on the subject, Ted DeVos. Ted, welcome back to hunting land, man. Uh, you know, for folks that haven't heard you on here before, first off, tell everybody a little bit about how you got into controlled burning and, and what you do with it.
1: Well, it's almost unfortunate how old of a story that is, but I got introduced to it. Of course, I'm kind of a Yankee, I guess I've been in the South for a long time, but when I first moved to uh, Florida in 84, I ended up at tall Timbers research station and was doing quail research and stuff there and just had the pleasure and the blessing of being able to learn about prescribed burning from some of the icons of, you know, burn management, <clears throat> fire management, and things like that. Leon Neal, uh, Roy Kamaric, some of those guys, Ed Kamaric was still around, but he wasn't active anymore. And, uh, Jimmy Atkinson's the manager down there at the time in the, in the mid eighties. So not only burning tall timbers, Uh, grounds but other properties that they worked on and um, you know this was prior to having computer modeling and all that kind of stuff so you know when you get out there burning with a guy like Leon Neal or Roy Comeric it's picking up pine needles and breaking them and seeing you know how dry it is and you might get a reasonable forecast for what the weather is going to be that day but you know even humidities and stuff like that you know, it was, it was marginal, the data you were getting. So um, a lot of test fires and stuff like that, but they burned, you know, out of that 3000 acre place, they probably burned, you know, 1,000, 1500 a year type thing. So got to learn uh, prescribed burning with them and uh, finished up a bachelor's degree and a master's degree uh, through the early nineties. And when I, and I did some burning during those time frames, I was more into the research and the things on the quail stuff for a long time, but really got heavily back into it. Um, when I started working with my partner that I'm with now with Bach and DeVos forestry and wildlife services, co-owner with him on this company, we've been around for 20 years doing land management work. And, um, we really started, you know, getting a lot of burning on our, on our landowners that we work with. So, that's built up over the years as well. I mean, I think, um, you know, last year we burned with the two of us, 13,000 acres, something like that. And, and that's just kind of slowly, but surely gotten more and more every year. We're always trying to fit what we can in the schedule. I know that's something we're going to talk about a little bit more is how do you prioritize that? How do you fit as many burn days in as you possibly can? But, you know, that's kind of what we're trying to do is, you know, work with individual landowners that are, mostly recreational oriented, uh, guys that want to do timber wildlife type stuff on their property, enjoy the hunting and fishing and, 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 aesthetics of their properties. So we try and help them fix it up do a lot of burning on it. Timber thinnings, uh, we run a couple of woodland mulchers. So we do a lot of clearing work. We have some, you know, bulldozers and doing fire lanes and stuff like that. And, uh, herbicide work, site prep, tree planting, long leaf, we just do a lot of different land management stuff and that's what that's what kind of our company's been about for like about 20 years and and um you know we've got a we pull in new guys still now and again we've got a pretty big client base um stretches us thin sometimes but most of the time we can get everything done we need to get done so that's kind of the background on it and uh, been doing it a long time it's probably my favorite thing to do is doing a prescribed burning thing that we do
0: well you you have been doing it a long time you're burning a lot every year you get to I know you've seen it go wrong every way it can go wrong, I'm sure. And, and sad to say, but yes. <laughs> and try to prevent those things from happening at the start and, you know, learn from yes. those those times. And, uh, you know, for, for a guy who like me is, is a, a, a new landowner, you know, I bought my first piece of land just a couple of years ago and I love learning about all this, all aspects of land management. And, and I'm with you, I mean, so far. A prescribed fire is the most fun thing I've done on my property and I've been hunting on it a lot and doing a lot yep. of fun stuff but that is just a very satisfying exciting a little bit nervous thing to do yep there's a lot of instant instant gratification with it I, I, I say it's like power washing you know yes, I mean exactly. if, are you the kind of guy that likes to cut grass or are you the kind of guy that likes power wash I'm the kind of guy that likes power wash I like to immediately see that's right the change and uh <laughs> And then get to enjoy it for half the year after that, you know, that's power washing. But when you're coming into doing your first prescribed fire, it's scary. You know, it's, it's, uh, you don't want to mess up. Yep. You, you want to make sure you do it right. It's daunting. You know, you don't, you got so many questions there. You, you just, you just almost don't know where to start. And so purpose of today's show is really to be more of an introduction to control burns and that kind of thing. So that being said, let's start out with some definitions. What what is a control burn, and why is it also called a prescribed burn? Uh, well, both of those are pretty descriptive
1: adjectives, I guess what they are. Whatever that word is, um, control burn is what you have most of the time. Uh, but <laughs> there's plenty of time we get. A lot of folks will pull off the side of the road, and you know, just controlled burn. And our our uh, smart ass answer is usually, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> you know, or something along those lines, and you know the whole concept is is you're you're using fire to reach an objective, and you somehow or another have control of it. But once you light that match, you know you you can manipulate it, but once it's to a point where you ain't putting it out anymore, it's it's almost on its own. We always equate it to having a a tiger on a leash. You know, it's pretty cool to be walking around with a tiger, but it can turn around and eat you pretty easy as well. Mm-hmm. So. And obviously a prescribed fire is a, a, a burning in the a, in a conditions to reach an objective that you prescribe. So I want this, you know, hundred acres over here. It's the current conditions are this, and I want it to become that. And that's your prescription of how do you get there. So there's, you know, there's some other names for prescribed burn as well, but you know, those two are probably the most commonly used and most descriptive of what you're up to.
0: You talk about you know, it's prescribed because you're trying to get it to a certain result. Correct. I've enjoyed those results this past turkey season, especially, uh, had some real good hunts, uh, that occurred in burned areas and next to burned areas. But what, what are some of those benefits? I'm a big turkey hunter. And, and of course, you know, most people that are into turkey hunting know the burns are great for turkeys, but why is that? What are the benefits of prescribed burns and then one of the things I always think about too is we can sit here and talk about benefits all day long but at the end of the day we got to make an economic case for for doing something too so you know we want to I want to know to you what are the main benefits but also how do the costs of burning compare to doing something like say food plots for example which are so popular yep obviously you know two related but totally different questions the benefits,
1: um, it, and I'm—you couldn't find a bigger proponent of prescribed burning than, than than me. I've been, you know, pushing it for a long time on folks that, you know, my wife was asking me. Uh, we we're looking at a piece of property and and uh, had a big pond on it, not a whole lot of land, and and I, she happened to be with me on that one, and and when we're done. She's like a piece of property that has like a whatever it was, a forty-acre lake and ten acres of ground, and you're telling the guy he needs to be burning you know, and I say, yeah, I mean, if it's just, if it's got, if it's got bare dirt or, 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 dirt with grass and leaves, it, it should be burned. You know, burning has been around a long time, millennium. A lot of our species have adapted to it. Longleaf leaf is uh, not necessarily fire dependent, but it certainly uh, coexisted with fire for a long time and, and doesn't do as well without fire. The wildfire aspect where, you know, if you have, Huge buildups so of fuel in the understory and midstory. You can mitigate that by doing prescribed burns, keeping the understory and midstory under control, lowering the fuel amounts. That then turns into, if it does get a wildfire, it's a much less damaging wildfire. So, burning as a wildfire prevention technique is is you know real common, probably more beneficial out west, but more risky um, than it is in the in the southeast, but. Um, From a wildlife standpoint, which is probably as much benefit as anything, you know, regular burning encourages an understory that is super wildlife beneficial. So the grasses, the forbs, the legumes, all those understory species that occur from, you know, waist high or chest high down below, which is where deer, turkeys, quail, lizards and frogs, everything that's not living in trees is dependent on what's growing on ground level. And that's the big thing to me. So when you have a closed canopy forest, for instance, especially one that has a thick mid-story of saplings and shrubs, you can go on on the ground cover and look at it. There's nothing there. I mean, it's leaves, it's pine needles. um, It may be vines or whatever, but there's just nothing growing on the ground to speak of. And when you start doing some burns through there, you start to thin out that mid-story You start to encourage more sunlight getting through the canopy, and it it obviously has a lot to do with the overstory canopy too. Do you have a lot of pine trees or a lot of hardwood trees above it that are shading out that understory? You're not going to get as much benefit from burning as you would if you have a midstory that's really choking out the sunlight, and you can thin that with prescribed fires. A lot of times when you do a first burn and you lose a lot of your small sapling oaks and sweet gums and things like that, people get a little freaked out. And especially forestry folks that look at it and and they're like, look, you know, we just damaged all these small hardwoods that could be trees in the future. From a wildlife biologist standpoint, I'm looking at it going, one, they probably weren't ever going to get into the upper canopy and become valuable. But two, those are the things that we're trying to get rid of is those things that are sucking up sunlight. And the whole key to it is maximizing the amount of sunlight getting to the ground and you start growing the broom straws. All these native grasses that are out there, it's amazing how long they can sit in that shaded out midstory and understory. You don't see any broom straw, but all of a sudden you thin it out a little bit or burn it, and suddenly those grasses and forms start coming back. There's seeds in the soil just waiting to to be released. And burning does that. So legumes, highly, you know, I don't say fire dependent, but they're certainly encouraged by fire. Um, a lot of the forbs or ragweeds and, and other weedy type plants that, that wildlife feed on, they feed on the seeds, they feed on the plants. It provides cover for them. Nesting cover for turkeys and quail is incredibly fire dependent. If you open up the canopy enough to get that sunlight on the ground that you can grow the broom straws and stuff, if you don't burn it, it turns back into a shrubby thicket and you lose it again. So you've got to maintain it with regular burning. And so a lot of stuff is, is, you know, fire benefited again, a lot of it's not necessarily fire dependent like longleaf, but it certainly is very dependent on a regular burning regime to keep it in shape. When you're talking about the the finances of it, you know, how much a burn costs depending on where you're at and who's doing it. If you've got a land manager that you're paying a salary already, you know, you're not getting a free burn but you're getting a burn from somebody who you're already paying anyways. Mm-hmm. So that's not necessarily an additional cost to do burning. If you're working with a contractors like us that, that, you know, charge to burn somebody's place, that cost will vary depending on where you're at. It might be, you know, 15 to $25 an acre for understory burning. It's, I know that's a big window, but you know, it depends on who you're contracting with. If you're in South Alabama, it's going to be different than if you're in North Alabama, but uh, and that's on a you know per acre basis, but the benefits you get out of that one, like we talked about with the wildlife and the understory and midstory, you know, control and things like that. Uh, but two, we have a tendency to see. I don't know if there's any good data to prove this or not, but problems like southern pine beetle, for instance, if we've got our pine stands well managed, which most of the ones on the properties we work on are, they've been thinned. There are not a lot of competition from tree to tree. They're being burned on a regular basis, two to three year rotations, stuff like that. We rarely see southern pine beetles move into our stands. We don't see that much disease issues and stuff like that in our pine trees. So we, we feel like there's a health benefit to the trees. When you're taking away that competition of the neighboring sweet gums and, and wax myrtles and all the other plants that suck up deeper nutrients and moisture out of the soil, I don't think there's a whole lot of competition in that first layer of understory plants like grasses and weeds and forbs for nutrients and, and moisture, but certainly deeper rooted stuff like sweet gums, other trees are competing directly against the pine trees you're trying to grow or the oak trees you're trying to grow. And if you can keep those, you know, under control, there's a growth benefit to the crop trees you're trying to grow as well. So a tree that's you know grown in a more open environment is going to grow faster. It has more sunlight. And has more moisture, so those trees obviously, if they're growing better, they're they're healthier as well. So, I mean, that's kind of a a, a direct. It, it may be a cost to burn, but in those cases, you're getting a benefit back, and that could be equated to a financial benefit. The risk is there. There's no question about it. So, when you're you know saying there's a cost of X per acre to burn, there's also that risk of burning off your neighbor, and having a fire get away from you. And, you know, even still with me after 20 years of doing it really intensively and 40 years of doing it, um, I still get butterflies in my stomach, you know, especially the first day of we're we're really getting back into understory burning, for instance, and we hadn't burned for, you know, a month or something like that. And I'm like, okay, here we go again. And, you know, that, you know, the risk is there. If you got a windy day or really dry day, I get a little nervous until the fire's been burning. For a little while and you know what you're up against because there's always variable conditions that you're not expecting and that's kind of the fun of it but it's also the scary part of it and when you've done it a long time you start seeing those places where you know you're going to have problems so corners you know 90 degree turns in the fire line um stuff like that and you know catching a wind shift on you that you didn't see coming you got a, a good solid southwest wind all day and all of a sudden the wind comes out of the northeast for 30 minutes and you just don't know where that came from, but that's what you got to deal with. And so, what what used to be a backfire, nice, pleasant, easy backfire, and you were just kind of running some spot heads up against it. All of a sudden, that that whole line turns on you, and you've got 200 yards of a headfire going through a pine stand you didn't expect or want. Those are the risks that go along with it. You know, and if you've done it long enough, you're going to kill timber. If you've done it long enough, you're going to have a jump, uh, potentially a bad jump that gets on a neighbor.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny to listen to you describe the, uh, I would call it the adrenaline dump that occurs, you know, and the nervousness, um, because that is certainly something that, that I experienced with helping that is certainly did not conduct my first burn, uh, alone, but with helping with that burn and we burned all day and into the night. And then we finished up about 10 o'clock at night. And I just remember sitting there back at camp, like for about an hour, hour and a half, just completely wired you know i mean i was yep. i was tired but i couldn't shut my brain off because i had just been but a satisfied wire is very satisfied it's, it's similar to uh, you're in the zone you know and in yep. and, and, and like uh, i think that's a lot of the reason why people enjoy hunting and fishing is that in their nature they require you to focus on what you're doing and they don't allow you to think about what's going on at home or what's going on at work or what may be giving you anxiety and you're just focused in in the moment and so it's a lot of fun because for those reasons yeah a lot of times you
1: know you get phone calls and stuff and there's a lot of times i'm just not answering my phone while i'm burning because you really do you've got to be on top of it you gotta you gotta be paying attention to everything and it's the beauty of burning with my partner that i've been burning with for so long we don't mind bringing other folks in and trying to help them learn That's a that's a great thing. But as far as just burning with somebody who I know I can count on, it's amazing that, you know, how often we're covering the same piece of fire line. We're going back to the same spot and looking because we both know that's a a risky spot. There's going to be a problem there. Or, you know, when you're when you're going to start another piece, all of a sudden you go, okay, well, that's the next place we need to go to. And you go there and the other guy's already there, just started doing the same thing. Because, you know, he's just been doing it for so long together, you know, where the other guy's going to be most of the time, what he's going to be up to. He's, you know, pushing fires the same way you're pushing them. Um, it just takes a takes a lot of experience to really do it right. But, you know, that helps a lot with what you're what you're doing. That's not to say you don't make mistakes. We still get jumps. We burned up plenty of equipment. We burned up some sheds. You know, there's things like that that happen. But, uh, you know, you hope to minimize that over time.
0: Yeah. You know, you talk about the benefits of it and there certainly can be some risks involved, like, but what in life doesn't involve right. risks and to, to get to those benefits. And if it wasn't worth the risks, then it wouldn't be done on as wide of a scale that it's done. And, uh, That's right. you know, and, and seeing the after effects is, is night and day, but
1: Especially you know, the long term, the long-term after effects, which is, which is what I really have gotten to enjoy probably more than anything else. It, it's kind of what we do with these properties. We're trying to take properties that need some work, and they need, you know, thinning, or they need some clearing, mulching work, or whatever, or they need some burning to get them to a point that's aesthetically pleasing and wildlife productive or timber productive, whatever the objectives are of that landowner. And that's a long-term process. So, taking a stand that has a been a neglected pine stand, for instance, and hadn't had fire in 20 years, and there's sweet gums big around your thigh out in there, when we, we, whether you can clear those out with a mulcher and start that process, or you can go in and start getting a burn-in program, the first burn doesn't look like much a year later. You look at it, and yeah, there's some dead sweet gums out there, and you know, two years later, you burn it again. You burn up the dead sweet gums that have fallen down, you kill a few more after five or six burns all of a sudden you've got this kind of pretty piney woods and you think back to what it was like you know 10 years ago when you first started you're like man that's an incredible difference it yeah. just takes it just takes time it's a slow progression but you know it really sometimes those first ones don't look like much
0: yeah i've i've been uh telling myself that because i'm i, I my piece is is very similar to what you describe you know it was an older Older pine stand, uh or several older pine stands with a good bit of mid story sweet gum growth and that type of habitat and first burn I put through there, it just like you said, it wasn't like a huge difference immediately. But what I just right. have always told myself is this is more than what has been being done for thirty years. That's so right. every time I do this, it's just gonna get a little better. And I don't hate it the way it is now. So, <laughs> you know, you just enjoy in that process, but you know, getting exactly. back to introducing people to this uh i mean the benefits are why you do it right and of course we i think i tend to fall more on the wildlife uh benefit spectrum than i do on As the timber do benefit spectrum that being said it is good to know and good to recognize that it's not just a cost i mean this may be something that's helping your timber grow to a higher volume keeping you disease-free keeping you insect-free is going to reduce loss and yep. most likely uh, maybe there's some data on this out there, but most likely burns are pretty much paying for themselves when you combine the, the aesthetic, the est- aesthetic improvements, the wildlife benefits and, you know, the, uh, the timber benefits, they, they're pretty well, much paying for themselves. They are a cash flow expense in that year.
1: That's right. Over time, you know, Goolsby had uh, an interesting slide at the prescribed fire council meeting, A couple months back And um, the data he was looking at I I, I should have pulled this up Before we came on here So I can quote it correctly But I believe it was a four to one Ratio of protein production On a piney woods Open quail woods kind of look That's been burned regularly And protein production On those acres Compared to a soybean field I mean an actual planted soybean field And if I remember right I can look this up and, you know, we can kind of correspond with it, but it's about a four to one, four acres of piney woods is equivalent protein production just because of the forbs and legumes growing in there as it would be to a one acre soybean
0: field. And that's huge because that's a huge benefit. It's a huge benefit, but it's also when you just think about it from a practicality standpoint, it doesn't matter what size landowner you are. It's good. It takes I mean, Food plots are a lot of work. I mean, yes. they're a lot of work and it's not just, usually it's not a one trip planting, you know, it's, it's multiple trips back and forth. It's, yep. it's herbicide, fertilizer, it's lime. fertilizer herbicide, lime exactly. and, and seed and tractor time and fuel and breakdowns and yep. droughts and all Mowing these things disking. that you're dealing with to produce that one acre. And then when you look at what you can do in a given weekend of good burning conditions, and, you, you, you know, you're talking about a, you can just impact a lot more land. Uh, well, and the, other benefits, the other benefits of it,
1: too, you take that four acres, let's say, of burned piney woods. Yeah, it's producing what well, one acre, you know, food plot of soybeans would produce in the summertime protein production. But it's also got the benefits of high-quality nesting cover in those years right. it's not burned for turkeys and quail. Right. It's also got the benefit of being high-quality brood cover you know, for, uh, quail and turkey poults and chicks in the summer that it is burned. It's also got the benefit of being a great place for fawn cover, you know, when the does are dropping fawns to drop them in that broom straw piney woods, and they're more protected from coyote predation and things like that. I mean, there's a lot of other benefits associated with it. Plus the aesthetic value, like I said. Yeah,
0: no doubt. And taking that and running with it, when I, you know, when you think about planting a food plot, there's a lot of planning involved in that. And there's also planning involved in conducting a burn on your property. So when you're working with a landowner before starting a controlled burn, you know, what are some of the steps that you recommend people take in terms of, of planning safety, but also establishing fire breaks? I mean, that was been, that's been the biggest challenge on my property has been We couldn't just, even we had good conditions, we couldn't just go start burning. We had to, we were having to rehab a lot of years of neglect to get to the point where we can have a burn.
1: Right. Yeah, there is. There's a lot of pre planning that goes into pretty much all of them. When you, you know, again, doing it a long time, you can streamline that process a little bit. Your fire breaks are already going to have been established and things like that. So it's easy to go in and just sweep all your fire lanes that you're fixing to do for the coming season, whatever the case might be. But if you've got a, a new landowner, obviously you know, establishing fire breaks that haven't been put in, that can be a little complicated and daunting when you talk about big trees that are typically going to be overstocked. They had not been thinned, hadn't been cut, or whatever the case might be. And so if you've got a fairly heavy stand of trees, you're going to have to come in with a big bulldozer, an excavator, a mulcher, something like that. In most cases, we're running a dozer with a small 10-foot blade we can kind of sneak it around in between the trees if we have to. We may not be able to keep it right on the property line, but you can go in there and kind of establish a lane that way. But in an ideal scenario, if you've got loggers, you know thin in the property and don't have fire lanes, you go ahead and you know get them to cut them and cut a fifteen foot wide swath on the property line or twenty foot wide, whatever the case might be. There's still going to be stumps you're going to have to deal with, but then you can at least get a dozer down there. A lot of folks will maintain, once the fire lanes are established, they'll maintain them with a disc. That's probably a good idea in off-seasons when you're not burning. I'd rather burn off a dozer lane. Even though you move some dirt, we've gotten pretty good at just skimming the surface so we're not digging up a lot of dirt and just kind of skim it so it's smooth and flat and hard. Uh, Gives you a little bit better fire lane. Disc up fire lanes can still have a lot of grass and and pine needles in them, so disc up fire lanes... One, they're rougher on a piece of equipment like a Polaris Ranger, but they can also have a tendency to creep across with mm. fuel that's left on it, whereas a dozer lane typically is going to be pretty smooth and, and clean. But as far as equipment and preparation, so you've got your fire lanes in. Having Some folks are going to you know, be wearing PPE and stuff like that, yellow um, Nomex and stuff to keep them burning up. We never have, probably should, but we don't. We're typically just running regular work clothes and boots, pair of leather gloves, but you got to be prepared to prevent a jump. That's obviously number one. You're going to be lighting fires. You're going to have a jump, be prepared to put it out. So if you've got equipment like four wheelers, Polaris Rangers, whatever, having water on site is pretty much imperative. It's extremely rare for us to burn without, without water. In most cases, just the average landowner, you know, can if he's gonna be burning a small piece, twenty acres of pine in his property or something like that, got good fire lanes established, have one of them electric pump sprayers on the front of a full wheeler with twenty gallons of water in it, that's typically gonna be adequate. A leaf blower, whether it's just a standard battery operated or gas operated handheld leaf blower, those are really nice, especially when you got hard fire lanes, you can just leaf blow them. You go down through a hardwood bottom. You know, where the leaves are dry and the the ground's kind of hard, you can establish a fire lane with a leaf blower. The bigger ones um, that you carry on your back that really can put out a lot of air, um, forced air, those are really nice. We don't run one, we, we run a couple of smaller ones, but if you really need to move a lot of leaves and stuff like that, those big heavy duty leaf blowers are really nice. Fire rakes, always a good idea to have on site. We don't typically use the flappers they work, but they're just slow. <clears throat> but a rake and a, and a leaf blower, something like that is, is, is ideal. But when we're the web, obviously we're burning a lot. So we're running our equipment. Typically is a uh, four wheeler with a uh, battery operated uh, power uh, torch on the back runs five gallons of burning fuel and runs off a battery and it can squirt that stuff out to the side. And, that works pretty efficiently. Those things can get you in trouble because you can light up too much too fast if you're not careful. But when you need to move a lot of fire lane and, and just really light up a lot of stuff on a back burner or something like that, those things are ideal. Um, then, of course, a hand torch that we're carrying with us as well. Um, and then we've got a Polaris Ranger where I'm carrying – I'm typically one driving a fire truck. And, and I've got 50 gallons of water in a five-horsepower spray rig on the back of the Polaris Ranger. And that has saved our butts a lot of times, even when you got fairly good size, if you got 50 foot of hose and you got a good size jump, you can still pull out that hose and and get around those things. But those are the most important things to have on site have, you know, some kind of, nobody needs to be coming out there in sandals or tennis shoes and a good pair of boots, leather gloves, something to, you know, forced air is always a good idea But imperative to have water on site and then some kind of equipment to get you around. We don't burn without, you know, a four-wheeler or a Polaris Ranger. Now, sometimes we leave the site without a four-wheeler or a Polaris (laughs) Ranger, but we always bring them when we're we're coming. I think we burned up, I don't know, three or four of them now, uh, which is just crazy, but weird things happen.
0: Yeah. All right, folks, we'll be right back. Y'all take a minute and check out some of the businesses that make this show free for you every episode. This week's show is brought to you by Texas Hunter. Since 1954, Texas Hunter Products has produced the best engineered and finest quality feeders and hunting blinds in the industry. The Texas Hunter brand has become synonymous with quality and durability. By sticking to premium standards, the company delivers tough, long-lasting products that meet the real-life needs of anglers and hunters across America. Their fish feeders, deer feeders, hunting blinds, and outdoor accessories are among the highest rated in the industry. You can trust that your purchase from Texas Hunter Products will meet your needs for generations to come. To learn more, visit TexasHunter.com. Also brought to you by Mallard Bay Outdoors. Mallardbay.com is the Airbnb style marketplace for discovering and booking your next guided hunting and fishing adventures. The Mallard Bay platform was built by Sportsman for Sportsman. Their mission is to help expand access to affordable and successful hunting by connecting you with verified outfitters across the United States. You can browse trips and prices by state or species, select the dates you'd like to go, message outfitters, and secure your dates all from one platform, mallardbay.com. Not sure where you want to go yet? Reach out on Instagram or Facebook and they can help you find your dream hunt. Tip, you're talking about proper equipment, and and like I said, I definitely wouldn't recommend anybody go at this al- alone, certainly not off of this podcast. I mean, get with somebody no. that that knows what they're doing and, and learn from them. But that being said, one, one of the things when I'm talking to people about controlled burning is I get a lot of sideways looks almost like that just sounds almost irresponsible to some people. Sure. People are scared of it. With that in mind, can you explain the anatomy of a control burn in a way that people can understand, and you know, things like when you say things like back burns, head fire, strip fires, can you basically explain what you're doing with a fire to keep it controlled? Sure. And, and back up just a little bit that a good way for
1: folks, whether they're landowners or folks are just interested in doing it, there are learning burns around the state um, John Stivers does a bunch of them and does a really good job. He's the guy who teaches the uh, prescribed burn courses and stuff like that. The uh, Prescribed Fire Council is a group of us that you know get together, have a seminar once a year for uh, a lot of different speakers and stuff like that, where you can get your certification and, and extra uh, CE hours and stuff like that to maintain your your prescribed burn uh, manager uh, certification. But anyway, they they'll put on And some of the counties do it as well. They'll put on learning burns scattered around the state where anybody can come. You pay your fee to come in, and and there'll be several experienced burners there and take landowners out, and folks to watch a burn, see how it's conducted, ask questions. In most cases, if the weather works out, that's always an issue. We're hard to predict the right day. But um, you can get there on the right day, and you get to watch a, a burn or be part of a burn and really helped folks get a taste of it. Basically, what you're trying to do is, you know, initially, on the preparation, we do, you know, our little burn plans and stuff like that. You get a map. You got the stand that you're going to try and burn. You know, we want to burn this 50 acres. We figure out how we're going to contain it. So that may be a road on on the, let's say, let's just take a square, you know, 100-acre block or whatever of piney woods we're going to burn. And on the uh, west side of that property, we got a paved road. And on the north side of that property, we got a nice hardwood drain that's actually going to have water in it. All right. So that's two fire breaks right there. On the east side and the south side, we've got property boundaries. We've got neighbors on both sides. And so we're looking at that. And this is all part of the preparation ahead of time before you even think about striking a match. You go, all right, I need a fire line that comes from the paved road that goes to the corner along the south line. And then I need a fire line that goes from the south line due north to go to that creek bottom. And now I've got my my fire contained with something that's not going to jump or hopefully it's not going to jump. And so now you're looking at, again, you've got a square unit, north, south, east, and west, and the west side's a paved road. All right, all the way to the north, you've got a community about two miles away. All right, and there's uh, a small town, two thousand people live there. And on the on the west side, across the paved road, you have you know scattered houses and trailers of people living out there and kind of out in the community. So you're looking at the map, going, all right, what have I got for smoke sensitive areas? Have I got uh, hospitals? Uh, have I got airports? Have I got big cities or or fairly large communities? And if I, obviously I've got some houses and things like that. So where are my smoke sensitive zones? I've got to start thinking about protecting and that's all part of smoke planning. So you've got to understand that, you know, when you, not only is when that fire is lit, that fire is yours. And if it jumps on a neighbor, it's still yours. You've got to figure out how to how to protect your neighbors, but you've also got to figure out how to protect the local communities and the houses and things like that from the smoke impacts. And you got to be paying attention to fire weather conditions, unstable days, high high um, pressure systems and stuff they may be a little unstable but they lift that smoke up and out gets it up in the atmosphere gets it out of there quick those low fronts and stuff like that come through um, when you get a little low pressure it pushes that smoke down to the ground and makes it linger you got to figure out what goes on at night that fire's still going to be smoking after you're done burning it so where's that smoke going to go uh, when the wind stops and dies down, the smoke lays down close to the ground. And it ends up in a creek bottom somewhere. And you got to figure out which way that creek bottom is going because that smoke's going to get in the bottom and it's going to go downstream with the water. So if you put up a lot of smoke and there's a lot of debris that smolders overnight, logs or a pile that was left over after the loggers are finished, you know, that, that pile is burning, smoldering all night. If it's putting up a lot of smoke and it gets down to a creek bottom and goes, it'll go a couple miles down to creek bottom. It could smoke in an interstate, for instance, you know, where that creek crosses there. So you got to pay attention to where all that uh, smoke issues are going to come in. Once you've got, you know, your plan together. So in this case, again, I've got a community in my north. I've got some houses to my west, uh, but I'm pretty safe on the on the east side and pretty safe on the south side. All right. That means I probably would rather burn, if nothing else out of a north wind or west wind. Thankfully that's a very common scenario, especially in January and February. You have know, the fronts come through, you get big northwest winds following behind them for a couple of days with lower humidities. And on your burn plan, you're going to be looking for one of my parameters. If I got a, you know, a burn piney woods, it's already been burned several times. It's got the grassy understory intact, I can burn that on a 35, 40% humidity day. So I'm, I'm pretty much good for anywhere from 20% humidity to 40% humidity. That's all going to be fine, especially with a little breeze. So on my burn plan, I've got, I would prefer a north or a west wind. I prefer something in the 20 to 40% humidity range. I want some, uh, you know, low stability and, and high pressure system. I want to get my smoke lifted up and out of there. And you got all the parameters on, you know, what you plan on burning that day. Uh, what your stability class is, stuff like that, and the wind directions. So when that day comes up, you've got your fire lanes either dissed up or swept out with a bulldozer, so your fire lanes are good. You go in and you check and make sure everything's the way it's supposed to be. You ride your fire lanes, check them. You know, you get out there at whatever, 9 o'clock in the morning, Humidity starting to drop, things are drying up enough for you to go ahead and light that fire, and you've got the northwest wind, and, um, you know, you don't want it too high you obviously got that parameter too what kind of wind speeds are you willing to accept on that site and uh so you've got you know northwest wind seven miles an hour gonna be a nice day for it sunny um high pressure system two days after a rain with that grassy piney woods it can burn pretty quickly after a rain front and you've got good ground moisture so now you've got all the conditions you want you've got a northwest wind coming the idea is that you go to the downwind side of that 100 acres which would be with a northwest wind you go to the southeast corner and that's where you're going to start and in our case there'll be two of us and we'll be all right this is you know we're in the southwest corner we're going to fix the light up it's 10 30 we know that between 10 30 and 3 that humidity is going to continue to drop during the day so right now we're lighting at the uh, least volatile time of the day by three o'clock it's going to be the most volatile time of the day. So we know our burning conditions are going to get more volatile as the day goes on, as long as it's a sunny day and the conditions stay normal. So one of us is going to be running to the north, and one of us is going to be running back to the west. And and an idea is that we capture a a downwind. One of those is going to be, if it's a northwest wind, they're going to be kind of flanking back and forth. So the idea is if we can get the east side and we can get the south side lit, and we got kind of a, a backfire or a flank fire burning slowly back into the tract, then it will be contained. At that point in time, we've got a contained burn unit. We know it's not going to get out to the North. Not only is it wet, but it's got a North wind. So it's pushing the other way. And we and not going to get across the paved road. Not only a nice wide fire line, but the wind's coming from the paved road as well. So now we've got it contained as far as definitions of a backfire, a backfire is a fire lit uh, where the, where the fire goes, Uh, slowly into the wind. So I guess the other way you could look at it to make it more clear, a head fire is a fire that burns with the wind, right? So if I'm on the north end of this tract in this case and I've got a north wind and I light up there, it's burning due south with the wind. It's blowing and it's hauling butt. A backfire is the opposite. A backfire is is something that is going to be burning against the wind and it's going to be slow. Flame length is going to be short. It's going to be taking its time. It's going to consume a lot. It's going to linger a long time. So if you got plants out there that don't need to have the fire lingering on it for hardwoods, let's say, lingering too long on it, it could cook them. And then a flank fire is basically a combination of those two. So in this case, with a northwest wind, if I run my fire to the north along that east line, occasionally that fire is going to look like a head fire. It's going to be pulling off the line. It's going to kind of run towards the south. And occasionally it's going to look like a backfire where the wind's coming more out of the west and it's back into the east slowly. So a flank fire is just a variable, flops back and forth. The other ones are going to be ring fires, where in this case, basically a ring fire would be you circle the whole thing. We use those, especially on clear cuts and stuff. When you have very secure lines and and very little wind, a ring fire can help you pull all the fire Once, once the fire starts really burning it pulls itself, it creates its own wind. And all of a sudden if there's no wind out there, we did it yesterday. We had about a thirty acre track that had reasonable fire lanes. And we just real quickly ringed the whole thing, got the fire going on all sides. There was no wind yesterday and got the fire going on all sides. And now all of a sudden all our fires were were burning into the middle of the track. We rung the whole thing and each fire was pulling the other fires. So it kind of, you know, pulled itself into the middle. It burned itself up real quick. Spot fires obviously just a single spot. So if you go out in the middle of that same hundred acres we're using as an example, and you go in the middle of it, you put one spot down, you have flank fire, you have a backfire, you have a head fire, and it basically does what it wants. It's it's a spot fire. We use those a lot. So to get back to the example, we're we're now, we've got the the fire secured. I've got a flank basically going to the North. I've got a a more or less a backfire or a flank going back to the West. I've got my my whole thing secured now my block is secure now i can burn it how i want to burn it now i'm comfortable i'm not going to get a jump anywhere i can burn this thing try and burn it without damaging any pine trees make the fire do what i want it to do it depending on the day you can start using those spot fires you can go back in behind the the black li- behind the black line the stuff that's already burning go behind the back fire and start putting a little spot here a little spot there see what those head fires do And if they're running a little bit hot, you just shorten them up. You make them shorter, you know, burn 20 yards off the line and, and, and just, you know, keep on running little spots. We do a lot of that where you just go back and forth through the tract, spot, 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 let those burn out, come back behind the the fire again, spot, 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 spot. If you have really uh, poor fuels or very open stand, that's just grassy there's very few pine trees or a field or whatever. You could run just a string long head fire, sweep it, go to the next piece, sweep it again, and just keep on sweeping head fires, you know, to burn that thing up quickly. Head fire is going to burn up fast. It can go over things. A lot of times it looks hot, looks dangerous, looks scary, tall flames, really moving, but you can, it'll jump over something pretty quick because it's not lingering very long and not burn it up. I've seen it go over a four-wheeler before and not do anything to it melted wow. a little bit of plastic and popped a tire. You know, that, that was it. It went over it so fast. It didn't have time to burn anything. Mm-hmm. If a backfire had crawled up under that four wheeler, it would have burned up the tires, which would have then burned up the rest of the four wheeler. So head fire was, you know, saved it. So just because it doesn't linger very long. So that's kind of the anatomy of how those things
0: uh, go. Yeah. You know, what I heard you say throughout all that is that a good plan is key. You know, having a plan is so important And the way you get to having the level of knowledge that you have to be able to create that plan is through, is through training. So you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but uh, for landowners that are interested in doing this themselves, or at least being a part of it, what are some of the prescribed burning courses that are available? You mentioned one earlier, but also what's the significance of becoming a certified prescribed fire manager? I know right now, or hopefully they're lifting it right now, but we've been under a burn ban, been in a severe drought. And, the only people that have been allowed to burn have been certified prescribed fire managers. So what, what's the significance of that?
1: Well, you you have to go through the training. There's a, uh, if I remember right, it's a three-day training course. And for Alabama, John Stivers is the one who teaches that has been for years now. Used to be Kent Hamby a long time ago, who's where I got mine, but John's an exceptional burner, real sharp guy and knows all the intricacies of it. I guess, when you're teaching it and you, you know, pour through the books all the time, you know, talk about the details. He's, he's good on the details. Um, and does a lot of burning. Um, he burns, you know, a lot in Hertzberg, Union Springs area and stuff like that. So getting your uh, certification in Alabama, I think if I remember right, you, you are not required to be a CBM, uh, but it's certainly encouraged. And, but I think, you know, if you got a, piece property, they're not asking your, when you call in for a burn permit, they're not asking your CBM number unless you're in situations like this. So now that we've got this burn ban going on, we called in yesterday and, and, you know, it got so dry, they, they instituted the burn ban across the state. They had a fire alert for a while. And during the fire alert, you could still get a burn permit. They might ask you if you were a burn manager. They didn't require your number. Then that we had the, the burn ban statewide because it got so dry and it was, it was bad. We actually had a, had a jump. That was uh, something we're still contending with, but you know, we haven't had a jump in 20 years and it was, that was bad. And this one, we had a pretty good jump. And it was two days after we had burned a clear cut right when this drought started. And amazingly, two weeks later, the thing started back up again. Um, that, that's how dry things got. Yeah. So anyway, they, they instituted that burn ban because there were so many wildfires across the state. And some of them small, some of them large. And then nobody could get a burn permit. So when they lifted it, we actually got number one after they lifted it because we were, we were sitting there waiting. But they said we're going to lift it at 5 o'clock. And we called at 501 and called in a burn permit because we were, we were ready to get some stuff burning. And that uh, allowed you on the burn bands still North Alabama even right now, even with this rain, um, North Alabama is still under a burn, burn bans. South Alabama is allowed to get a permit they're asking for the number now. They want you to to give you them your CBM number uh, when you call in a permit, and they're only issuing permits on a day by day basis. So, and it's still you know other than before this rain, it was still pretty dry. It's still pretty hairy out there, even with the rain that we had. But anyway, that's the, the benefits of that. You get the knowledge to you know get the process started. You understand what plans are for you understand what you know humidities and fine fuel moistures wind speeds and directions topography all that stuff is discussed you know how you utilize those during a burn what's good what's bad you know don't burn up hills unless you know what you're doing stuff like that and you get access of course to these learn and burn so you can you know be on some of these things a couple times and and you know participate in lighting and fires and, and that type of thing but it also, there's, um, I don't know that's been tested. Uh, there is some liability issues um, that if you, you know, are certified burn manager and you have a problem that a jump that, you know, is not um, neglect, that you have some protection. And certainly would be in a situation where that was argued in court, you know, that you have some experience, you're a certified burn manager you pretty much know what you're doing. You hope that, you know, in, in a court situation that you get some protection out of that as well.
0: All right, folks, we're going to be right back. Y'all take a minute and check out some of our sponsors. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks are proud to be your metal roofing headquarters for over 40 years. Save time and money by buying from the most reliable manufacturer on the Gulf Coast. If you buy it today, you pick it up today. They offer 20 Sherwin-Williams colors to choose from, and a forty-year warranty. Baker Metal and Dixie Supply, two names, same great service. With the addition of their new store in Cantonment, Florida, they now have eight locations to serve you. Dixie Supply and Baker Metal Works, your metal roofing headquarters. Ted, uh, you know, there's no doubt that you got to have a good plan. Um, you want to be prepared, you know, for these types of scenarios that you're you're describing. But you know, getting back to the benefits a little bit and when you finish that burn, a lot of times it is such a difference, you know, and it feels good. And then you come back after that first growing season. That's what I'm seeing right now. And I'm going, man, I just burned this. And I got plants in there that are eight feet tall. I mean, literally eight feet tall. And I'm looking at that going, well, I've always heard you're supposed to burn every couple of years, three years, two and a half years. You know, I mean, you kind of hear these rules of thumb about burn intervals, but I'm looking at this going, man, it's, it's, it's thicker and it doesn't even look like I did anything. And it was burned right. down to just scorched earth in there. So how do you pick a burn interval for a property and combining maybe also you know, the goals of the of the landowner with just knowledge of the soils and the in the vegetation that's growing there?
1: Yeah, there's a there's a lot right there that needs to be unpacked between you know, burn intervals, you know, how often you come back in and relight burn block size. Super important. Depend on the species. I just wrote an article on that a little while ago. And season to burn. I mean, those are three big things that kind of reflect on exactly the question you're you're asking. Burn intervals depend on really a couple things, I guess. One is obviously landowner objectives. What are they after? You know, quail guy is going to burn more often than a deer guy, and depends on you know what you're working with. So if you're if you're a quail guy you're working with burned piney woods right off the bat. There's just really no other way around it. And in that case, you're burning every other year in most cases. And which means if you're burning every other year, you're burning 50% of your habitat every year. And it's imperative that, you know, from a quail standpoint, that that ground cover is controlled and maintained and that there's some open ground every year. And that's how you get it, either fire or disc. So, When you're looking at the plant species that are out there, some of those plants, the ones you're talking about that recovered this year are some of the grasses and things like that that are going to come back every year, no matter what. So you burn them down to the ground and they recover to exactly what they were before you started. If you're talking about the grasses, they're never going to get, you know, 10 feet tall, 20 foot tall. They're obviously grasses. If you're talking about sweet gums, that's a little different as well. It's a different way to handle, you know, more woody and shrubby type material on both season of burn and, and the uh, rotation, how often you come back in and burn it, in addition to herbicides, which is all part of that. If you're dealing with sweet gums, you've got an issue that you'll you'll never kill all your sweet gums with fire. It just it didn't go happen at least not in our lifetimes. So then you got to kind of resort to herbicides or you live with the fact that you have sweet gums and you got to keep your burn rotation down to about two years. The deer guys obviously like a little thicker cover in most cases. The the issue is you know, maintaining that. So if you run on a three-year or four-year, if you're in an open environment where you got a lot of sunlight on the ground, if you're running on a three- or four-year rotation, it just about gets out of control every time you come back in and relight. And if you lose it one year, you've lost it. You've got to come back in with mechanical or herbicides and recapture that site. So you've got to be real careful about you know, how you, how you do that. And it can happen real easy that you get that year that you didn't get the burn done. You wanted to get burned because you didn't have the burn days or just real wet that year, whatever the case might be. But if you're, if you're, you know, again, you go back to quail stuff, you're doing a two-year rotation. You're doing small blocks and scattering them around your property. If you're doing, you know, turkey, the deer, the deer do fine, I think on whatever. And you've seen a lot of properties that deer are doing fine without fire at all. And I don't know that I think think in a burn environment, you can probably carry more deer, but the deer are the species that are going to go with you no matter what you do. Turkeys, you could lose in a hurry. Turkeys really benefit from a burn rotation. And in most cases, you know, three year is probably the right rotation in the piney woods anyway. We do a lot of hardwood burning too. And, you know, whether it's letting fires creep down into hardwood bottoms and we burn it upland open kind of hardwood savannah type stuff but we, we do a lot of hardwood burning as well and benefits from it but a, a three year rotation is probably the ideal scenario in most cases for turkeys but so much of it depends just like your burn plan so much of it depends on what you're looking at out there every day, every day you're driving around the property looking uh, I was burning that on a three year rotation but that's getting a little bit too hairy I probably need to bump that down to a two year rotation for a while um but this one over here is real grassy piney woods maybe i want to leave that you know i burned it two years ago but you know maybe i don't need to burn it this year it's just thick it's rough but it doesn't have sweet gums and wax myrtles aren't too tall you know i could leave that for another year so you can change things up as you go we've have some of our properties that that's it's just a t- it's a three-year burn rotation period and you know every three years the whole place is burned off at some point in time some of the properties are burned on a two-year. Some properties that are not that intensely managed, they might be, or five years. But they also don't have the sunlight in most cases. That that open piney woods and that grassy understory. The burn block size thing has a lot to do with the species you're trying to manage for. So if you're burning for quail, ideally you're keeping your burn blocks less than fifty acres, in a lot of them. Um, so, you know, if you've got thousand acre property and you're you know burning 50 20 acre blocks, that's a lot of work. but you know that's pretty much the way you got to do it. And um, if you're doing turkey stuff and again that relates to if you're doing quail stuff, the, the idea is you can't isolate them isolate them in there in that habitat by burning the whole thing off in the spring. And in springtime when everybody's doing their burning quail running you know in the wintertime 30 to 50 acre home ranges, you burn off their whole home range. They really don't want to move out of that if they can avoid it. And so they get susceptible to being killed by hawks, which are migrating through at that time frame. You also, you're losing the ability for a quail to nest over here in this block and hop right over and get to a brood habitat, which is a burned piney woods or a ragweed field. And they just don't move like turkeys do. Turkeys are the same kind of thing. A lot of Chamberlain's data and Goolsby's data. I mean, they're finding that, these turkeys don't utilize the centers of big burn blocks. So 500 acre burn is a bad burn for turkeys. It's just too big. They don't ever get out in the middle of that 500 acre burn to use it until it fully, you know, greens back up. And so your burn blocks for turkeys can be hundred acres, you know, maybe even two if it's long and narrow. Um, but you got to be careful about, you know, isolating critters and taking out all the nesting cover in one year, for instance, out of their home range. You want to kind of have that ability for them to, uh, have a little nesting cover over here, and right next to it, fifty acre, you know, burn block of brood cover, whatever the case might be. And again, the deer, you don't want to, you know, burn off a big block and isolate your deer in it either, because they're going to move somewhere else. But uh, you're not going to, you're not going to make deer more susceptible to predation by burning. And I think, you know, when they're dropping fawns, if you burn in February and it was July, they're going to drop their fawns just fine in that burned environment. So again, I think deer are just more adaptable.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I just don't worry about those deer. I've never been on a quail plantation that didn't have good deer populations. Exactly. And, uh, but, and I, but I've been on plenty of properties that had absolutely no management, pretty much the worst, <laughs> the worst invasive species. They still have deer, you yep. know, it's they're they're going to make it. But what you could lose is your turkeys and your quail and her. That's right. Yeah. Yep. So, I mean, you know, what I'm really hearing you say, and it's been a consistent theme in this podcast for five years, we've been doing it. And anytime we're talking about land management is... It just depends. Everything just depends on the really property does. and the goals. And you got to get out there and put boots on the ground and look at what's going on, you know, prior to burning, after burning, and just kind of figure out what's happening. Um, yep. no set no way to set a rule of thumb on this kind of stuff. You got to get out there and look at it. And that's part of the exactly. fun of it. It is. Um, Absolutely. Well, you know, you mentioned it earlier, the costs of a controlled burn. I think we've, think you've done a great job of explaining that the costs are certainly, outweighed by the benefits but when it comes to funding a controlled burn of course you know you may have to pay for it yourself but there are some cost share options out there Uh, take take our landowners through you know what they can look for in their area in terms of cost share to get their burning paid for or at least yeah there's
1: yeah there's there's usually a lot of opportunities for that we encourage our landowners to go down to nrcs We've done it ourselves. Um, we'll, we work with the NRCS with our landowners and send them maps and things like that. Obviously, the landowner themselves have to do the signature pages and things. So we just encourage our, our folks to go down the NRCS office. That's the main place where you can find some funding for you know a variety of things. Burning, uh, longleaf planting, herbicide work, early successional habitat management, native warm season grass. There's a lot of stuff available to the landowners you're not always going to get on the programs there's plenty of times which is why we typically encourage our landowners to go do it because there is a lot of wasted time where you go in there you do all the applications you don't get accepted and you know you just can't do that to with 30 different landowners and get five of them accepted you just burned up too much time but but you go in talk to them if you work with somebody like us you know, we can send the maps. Here's what we're thinking about doing spray work on. Here's what we're going to be burning this year. Here's what we're going to be burning next year. If You can get under some of these better programs like the CSP, the Conservation Stewardship Program, five-year program. Here's the five different activities we want to do. Um, our burn rotation is going to be this over the next five years. We're going to burn this block this year and those two blocks next year, these two blocks the year after. And And here's our, you know, burn rotation. We're going to you know, we've got a clear cut over there. We're going to plant some long leaf. And over here, we're going to do some sweet gum spraying, whatever. If you can get under that program, it's it's a pretty nice program. and pretty much pays for all that stuff. There's the, the WIP, uh, WHIP program, uh, E-Q-I-P, EQIP, Environmental Quality Incentives programs, The other one's Wildlife Habitat Incentive Program. There's way more than that as well. So the NRCS folks, uh, the local district biologists, will be able to tell you what programs are available how best to do it. And again, if you're working with somebody like us where you can get them to send the maps and here's the places we plan on doing it, then they go through the application process. And if you got things, let's say you've got longleaf, there's probably a good chance you're going to be able to get some cost share for burning. The, the uh, government has really encouraged people to grow and manage longleaf plantations or more longleaf, even if you've got natural longleaf. You know, they're probably going to find some place to cost share you some money to do that. If you're doing early successional work, quail stuff, they, they typically have a lot of funds available for that. Longleaf Alliance does some. The Fish and Wildlife Service does some. I don't think those programs are as extensive as NRCS, uh, or I guess for those who are not familiar with Natural Resource Conservation Service. But every county's got one, and those guys are the best resource to go inquire about, you know, how can I get on some cost share for some of these activities.
0: There's a lot of help out there a lot of programs out there that are benefiting landowners that want to do this. Uh, yep. and like you said, you, you may not get on it the first application go round, but, uh, having your ducks in a row, uh, working with somebody like you guys being able to explain what we're doing, why we're doing it. Uh, maybe you can even find a gopher tortoise hole while you're out there to send exactly. a picture of, uh, <laughs> you yep. know, all those kind of things can really help people, to get this done and to do it consistently. Ted has been a lot of fun kind of introducing people to prescribe fire on the podcast. There's certainly a lot more we could talk about here. We really just kind of scratched the surface, but if folks want to get in touch with you, talk about their specific property, where they are, what their goals are, what they're, what they're trying to accomplish. Um, how can they reach out to you guys and, and start to learn more about doing this on their property?
1: Well, we've got a website, BachandDeVos.com, B-A-C-H-A-N-D-D-E-V-O-S. It's a pretty cool website, I think. It's got a lot of neat pictures, videos, lots of burning, you know, showing a lot of the activities we do, pretty, you know, photo-heavy website, and there's some contact information there, but we operate mostly phones anymore like everybody does. I I don't even think our office phone is hooked up, and I don't have one at home. Uh, Everything's run off the cell phone I'm talking to you on. And, uh, but that number is 334-850-4955. and we, you know, operate central uh, Alabama, you know, just pretty much south of Birmingham, north of Dothan, um, north of Greenville kind of thing in that, in that zone. We do a little bit out of there. Our mulchers will travel a little bit farther than that because it's pretty easy to go move a, a machine and, you know, get a hotel room somewhere and, you know, work out. Farther out than we do, but as far as dragging that that burning rig behind my truck, which gets attached in uh, January and gets detached in June, pretty much. And when you're ten thousand acres into a, or you yeah, ten thousand acres into a thirteen thousand acre burn season, you're pretty much tired of watching that that rig dragging behind your truck. And you try not to go far. If yeah. I can stay thirty minutes from my house rather than three hours from my house, I'm much happier to you know burn those closer places, which is. You know, kind of what we tried to do is is stay a little closer on that type of stuff.
0: Well, Ted, it's been a lot of fun. I appreciate you sharing your knowledge, uh, folks. Y'all can expect uh, uh, an article coming up in Great Days Outdoors magazine. We're going to talk about this a little bit in a little bit more detail with you, Ted, and and publish that there. Uh, but thanks for joining me on the podcast today.
1: Enjoyed it. I appreciate the invite.
0: Well, that's going to wrap it up for us this week. Appreciate you joining us. We want to make it easy for you to listen. So here's a handy option for you. To get the podcast emailed to you each week, just text the word HUNTING to 773-770-4377. Again, just text the word HUNTING to 773-770-4377. You'll join our email list. And wherever you are listening to podcasts, go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. Send us a written review. We'd love to hear from you. If you've got a show topic, that you are interested in and like to see us cover just email us at pros@landhunting.com. that's going to do it for us y'all stay safe out there we'll talk to you next time this week's show is brought to you by first south farm credit first south shares its profits with its borrowers in the form of a patronage refund lowering your cost of borrowing check them out at firstsouthland.com or call them at 800-955-1722 they're an equal housing lender The Hunter's Bait Lowdown Trail Cam Reviewer. The Lowdown High-Speed Trail Cam Viewer has flippin' fast technology that allows you to view images three times faster on a screen that is 60% bigger than typical 7-inch viewers. Find out more at LowdownViewer.com. And also, Great Days Outdoors, the South's finest hunting and fishing magazine. Pick up your copy wherever magazines are sold, or check them out at GreatDaysOutdoors.com. And also by Southern Seed and Feed. Do you want to provide better nutrients for your deer? Check out Southern Buck. Your deer will love it. Visit their website at SouthernSeedFeed.com or call 662 726 2638 to find the dealer nearest you. And also, Field Torque. The Field Torque Field Dressing Super Tool is five times faster, safer, and cleaner without replacing blades. Get yours today at FieldTorque.com. Also, on Amazon.